1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Hey listeners, just a little heads up that this episode contains discussion of racism, racist microaggressions, and also sexual assault, so please go gently. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with that no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, we know the answer is always yes. I'm your host, Clementine Ford, author of the books Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, and currently writing the forthcoming memoir, How We Love. My guest this week is an educator, an anti-racism activist, a mother, a former teacher, and I'm very proud to say a friend she is Kirsty Rutherford. Welcome to the hotline. It is so very nice to have you here.
0: Hi Clementine, thank you for having me.
1: I can't remember our first interaction on Instagram, which of course that's where I met you. It's pretty much where I've met every awesome woman that I've, you know, become friends with in the last year the one upside of the pandemic. Um but I, I can't remember the original interaction, but I would say that you and I probably exchange hundreds of messages a week, I think. <laughs>
0: I think we have. Would you really? we yes, yes. Yeah, we definitely we definitely do and definitely have for the best part <laughs> of the last year, I'd say, yeah.
1: <laughs> One of the things that I am so endlessly inspired by in your account is that you have, I mean, obviously you you come to the you come to a political position from, you know, your own lived experience as a black woman who was born and raised in England. Now you live in Australia. Um, But your commitment to education and to relentless activism is, I know that we sort of throw around the words like inspiring and they kind of end up being pretty meaningless, but I really feel like it's very inspiring seeing how just tireless you seem to be.
0: Thank you. Um, I think when events happened last year that kind of triggered me going into this anti-racism activism, it really hit such a deep place. Um, I guess in every black person to some extent, you know, um, watching what we all did on on the screens of our TV it was completely inescapable, and it was so confronting. And it took me a good couple of weeks to process everything that was happening, sit with that. And then when I did the anger, (laughs) the anger inside me was just indescribable really. And I had to do something with it. And I remember sitting down one day, thinking to myself, this is completely fucked. Basically, no one's going to take charge and fix this. And you know, we've been asking nicely, literally for hundreds of years. And if I do not do something about this, it's not going to stop. This is going to be the same, you know, repetition of behavior of oppression for generations to come for my kids. You know, I don't want to, you know, be having the same conversations with them that, you know, or or having them have the same conversations with their children that my mother had to have with me and so I just thought right I've got to do this and I literally don't think I've sat down since really so (laughs) and I'm a a night owl as well so I often work through the night and I just think it's been my number one priority for the past 12 months to get as much information out there to educate people because we need to interrupt the racism you know we need to disrupt the white supremacy and so i literally i think i've made it kind of my the mission of my life to single-handedly take that on and obviously single-handedly taking it on but that's how it's felt to some extent you know that's my drive because it's like i have to do this i really have to get this right i have to get that message through to as many people as i can as often as i can because you know unless everyone is engaging with it and forced to face these things all of the time it's not going to fix itself you know Mm. so
1: your account as well has been you know an incredible source of education and information sharing and i i see people i know sharing your content now too which i kind of like sometimes feel like oh i know her. (laughs) Um, i just yeah i think that the one of the things i think that really draws me to you is that you have a really relentless approach and you mentioned anger before what do you do with this anger and we're going to talk a little bit in this episode not just in our discussion but also some of the questions that we have about anger and how you can channel it in in productive ways but I really love about you that you you know you reject the idea that things need to be asked for politely Mm -hmm. that behaving properly will lead to change I mean you mentioned that before that these fights have been being fought for hundreds of years and no approach so far has managed to dismantle the system of white supremacy certainly not being polite yeah so what else do you do and and I think that that's what I love so much about you is that you're just like fuck it I'm gonna (laughs) say what pisses people off yeah (laughs) I'm gonna I'm going to be angry about it and I'm also going to be factual. Yeah. I'm going to be factual about this. Yeah. And you cannot read these facts and not be angry. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's it. You know, being a mixed-race black woman, every element of my life is shaped by the way racism disrupts disrupts it and um, disrupts the flow of it, I guess, mm-hmm. Um forms barriers and and interactions it's so pervasive the racism that i experience it's almost taken for granted in the same way that you know lots of lots of your experiences as a white woman with white privilege you go and remarked so i think and i think that is what has really you know led me down the path of wanting to to do more in terms of education. And I used to be a teacher and I technically still am. And um, working in the education system, you know, there's lots of great things going on within the education system. And, you know, lots of teachers do a great job, but there's also a hell of a lot not going right. And it goes beyond the, you know, who sat in front of the children. It's deeper than that. And as somebody that was deeply committed to educating children um with justice and equality and equity. Still I've got children in front of me that, you know, are falling through the gap, so to speak, you know, all that terminology. And it was just perplexing and deeply, deeply upsetting because it's, you know, it made me ask questions like, what what is going wrong here? We are failing so many children because, you know, we're missing them. And how are we missing them? So I ended up going to Goldsmiths University, which is um, part of the University of London and enrolling on a master's degree in culture language, education and identity. And um, basically spent a hell of a lot of money and a lot of time um, kind of exploring, I guess, you know, the structure of racism, institutional racism, the formation of identity, um, how we personally develop our identity, how people identify us. Um, the importance of language, identity, and culture within the educational institution as a uh, uh, construct, and how white supremacy works against that, and also how um, I guess the normalization of whiteness kind of dominates that institution, which then means essentially education is, is uh, an institution that is made by white people for white people. You know, to serve their needs, and so if you fall outside of those groups within the way whiteness is normalized by the you know the white middle class canon, if you fall outside of that, your difference is never embraced and celebrated. It's othered, and so your needs can't be met by systems that have literally been set up to not serve your needs. Mm-hmm. You know, to to opt to keep you out of them essentially. And and so um, where am I going with this? Yes, yeah, so I, I did you know, did all my postgraduate modules and so forth. And then I came to Australia and um, had to write this thesis, which was, you know, the final bit. I'd done so well in all my modules and I was, it was, you know, quite triggering, well, not quite, very triggering, a lot of the things we were learning about and how just basically screwed from, you know, the foundations up, you know, you, you re- as a person of colour going through any institutional system, you are constantly, um fighting resistance you know you are literally just swimming against the tide to stay afloat as best you can it's not about your success the system's not being set up for your success it's for the success of white middle class people you know that subscribe to what whiteness defines and so um i think i came to australia as i said had to do this thesis and i decided to um have a look at you know how race intersects with the educational system in Australia, and um, what it essentially means to be a a black or brown child, a person of colour, a child of colour in the uh, primary school system, and you know for any master's thesis there's two parts, there's your lit review and then your research, and I did this, the lit review, and I was pregnant at this point as well, and you know having a, a, you know, I was carrying a child, which was you know going to be a black baby coming into a very white australian world and i'm doing this lit review and the shit that i'm reading was just killing my soul it was like next level and then you know understanding you know the amount of money invested in children of color in this country versus the amount of money invested in i guess white children in terms of you can kind of look at you know how the the government fund private education versus public education and it's just the whole thing is crazy, you know?
1: Well, it speaks to that, you know, the myth
0: of meritocracy yeah,
1: as well. That all of this the myth of meritocracy does not just act in service of white supremacy, it also acts in service of capitalism, of patriarchy, everything that maintains that peak power at the top. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it makes me think of um, you know, when I was speaking to Cole Beck a couple of yeah. weeks ago on the podcast about her book White Feminism and and the ways in which white feminism as a as an ideology has made it seem so that success for a very small number of privileged mm-hmm. white women, typically middle class and upper, like that's somehow a win for women. Yeah. It's a win for all women because some of them have managed to make it through the door. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um and um, yeah and that's exactly how every institution is set up, you know. And I guess as I'm writing this lit review, I'm just so confronted with with what I'm analysing, the information I'm reading. And it was it was really triggering. And I don't think I had anticipated how triggering it was going to be. And it was actually debilitating and I couldn't write. And I'm a person that can, you know, I'm quite nuanced in how I will, you know, smash out an academic essay. I don't drag it out every week. So, you know, do it at midnight, hand it in at 6 a.m. But it gets me an air, you know, that's the way I work. And I just couldn't I couldn't work. I couldn't get my head around it. I couldn't type. And it was—I don't think I realized at the time—but it was—it was traumatic because it was um, triggering things. That I guess had happened to me, and also just this reality, this reality that I was faced with that I'm about to have this baby in a system that is so oppositional to its existence, you know. And mm-hmm. and what was I going to do about it, you know? And then I had to do um, my uh, qualitative research, which was interviews with with children in the school I was working at, and it just was so hard. And I ended up having my baby, and um, lots of personal anxiety, and just not not submitting this paper, and just literally going, I can't do it, I don't know what's going on, whatever. And having really in-depth discussions with my um, supervisor, who was still in the UK, um, who I guess was sympathetic, but didn't quite get it. And it's interesting actually, I've just, a friend of mine who's in academia, she sent a paper to me recently about how um, there is such a thing as researchers, you know, being traumatized by what they're researching. And I was definitely going through some of that. And anyway, so that kind of is where I've got a lot of my knowledge from. I didn't end up, sadly, finishing my master's, which is something that pains me significantly. But I just couldn't, I couldn't pick it up to do it again. And I'd type and, I, and then I'd put the words there, and I just couldn't bring it together because it was so, so centred in in this trauma for me, and it was it was just triggering. And so I had to move away from it. And so I had my girls, and to some extent, I've got three three daughters. Um, to some extent, I Beautiful. did. Well, thank you. Did what I always have done before that because I'd kind of I was having my children, so I was having time off to have the girls, and I wasn't back in the education system. So I just did what I needed to do to survive. And at that point, navigating all of that postnatal anxiety, surviving was not immersing myself in a lit review or anything to do with institutional racism because it was heartbreaking and just beyond, you know.
1: It also speaks to exactly what you're saying about institutional racism and institutional bias, that there was no system in place to recognise that you would be experiencing this trauma, that this that this kind of research would likely be traumatic for you, yeah. and that there should be an adequate and appropriate academic response yeah. to that, not just for you as an individual, but set up to precisely handle that kind of issue. And the fact that that doesn't exist, I mean, I'm I'm not shocked at all. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. The fact that that doesn't exist shows just how difficult it is to challenge those systems because the systems themselves don't want to be challenged do they they make they force people to adapt to exist within them and if you can't do it it's not the system's fault they want you to believe
0: that it's your fault and you know and I guess as well sometimes when I'd be articulating the difficulty I was having you know just opening the laptop up to my supervisor I, I wasn't necessarily always articulating the why because I couldn't understand it either. It was just totally overwhelming. And, and anyway, so then, you know, I put this to the side and I'm just like, we just need to forget that and put that in a box because I can't do that. I've got a lot, you know, I've got what I needed out of it essentially, which was the knowledge and I've got a postgrad something rather. It wasn't my masters, but it was something. And you know, that'll be that. So then I've got the girls trying to get on with, with my lived experience. You know as being a mum trying to separate but of course i cannot separate myself from racism that is not a privilege i have in my life and navigating being a first-time mum as a mixed-race black woman in australia was pretty tough it was pretty tough i have to say and um, we were living in the eastern suburbs of sydney which is not particularly diverse at all um and yeah there was a lot of a lot of challenges every day mm-hmm.
1: i'm hesitant to change the topic because i don't want it to seem like i'm dismissing or sweeping aside everything okay. that you've just said but i'm also aware that i don't want you to feel like you're just here to kind of dredge up yes. trauma so i'm curious i'm curious to know as the flip side of yeah. that what what have you been able to if at all I mean, navigating that system without any kind of institutional support, you have to figure out ways to survive it yourself and some of that survival needs to come from self-care and self-care as a political act. So what kinds of things, because I know that lots of people listening to this would benefit from hearing that, what do you do to there's no way that you can lessen the impact of it. But how do you protect yourself daily?
0: Oh, well, this is something I'm still learning to do. It's a work in progress, I think, with this one because um, I think in the aftermath last year of George Floyd being murdered, um, I initially, it was like a big emotional collapse. That's the only way I can describe what happened. And um, I was so completely overwhelmed. It was like because you couldn't escape what had happened because it was literally everywhere. It was blown up over screens everywhere. And it was in the, you know, it was being discussed as it quite rightly should. What it essentially had done was kind of, you know, like a wound, it kind of knocked the scab off. And so as that hmm. surface scab had come off, it was literally like all of that trauma that I experienced in my entire life just came flying out, you know, just at, just beyond. And I couldn't escape it. And I remember literally for a whole, probably like a two or three week period, just not really being able to function because I was constantly processing all of these experiences that I had lived. And um, part of the process of navigating racism, I think any person of color will tell you, is that one of the coping strategies or mechanisms that you kind of deploy to to get through life is that you kind of self-gaslight a bit, you know? Um, You're gaslit by everyone around you in society, but you also, Kind of tell yourself a lot of the time a lot of things aren't happening or, um, you know, yeah, you reduce you, them. You know, did that happen? Did that happen? And you're constantly second guessing yourself. Or, or you say, did that, did that even happen? Those particularly with the racial microaggressions, which are probably the more, you know, the more frequent things that happen Um, and it's 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 really challenging to navigate that and so that first couple of weeks after you know george Floyd was brutally murdered it was just processing all of that and i literally i remember one day just thinking fuck like i've literally where has this been because you put it in a box in your head and you leave it there because it's i mean if you don't what do you do with it how do you how do you live with that there all the time and so the lid had come off you know the wound had opened; it, it all come out and i'm starting to think about things and remember things and the anger's building the anger's building and and then i just thought I, I can't function you know so i had to take some time out initially just to kind of i guess i don't know it's not balance myself but just uh, re not reset i don't know what the word is you know just kind of sit with it mm-hmm. um and it's almost yeah. like stepping out of yes. the ring. so to speak. And that was the thing. And I couldn't escape my own brain. I couldn't escape my own thoughts because the lived experiences that I had locked away were suddenly at the absolute fore of, of my consciousness. And the anger was rising. And I, I literally, I don't think I could look after my kids very well during that time either because I wasn't present. I was consumed with processing. That happened, this happened, that happened. And, you know, and then I'd be angry and, it'd be, you know, I was just, I I didn't know what to do with the anger. And so one of the things I think I'd I'd try and do is um, read. And, you know, conversely, I wouldn't read uh, escapism type of texts. It would be, you know, books to do with racism and um, the plight of, you know, black women or, or what have you, because I think I found some solace in that, you know, in that because I've literally probably all of my life had to live with all in this almost kind of denial of what the reality of my existence is in order to survive and also for the comfort of white people um i think that you know going to literature and proactively seeking stories that mirrored my own was validating um and also yeah I, i i think in some bizarre way, I got some peace from the words on the pages um, because they resonated with me and often they were part of it. Well, it confirms, it confirms
1: to you, doesn't it, that it's not yeah, all in yeah. your head. or well, That gaslighting that you were talking about before that you experienced not just at the hands of society and people within society gaslighting you, but the ways in which it conditions oh, you to gaslight yeah, yourself yeah. when you can see it reflected back on the page in the experiences of not just one but countless other people who've experienced the same yeah. things, there is a relief. I mean obviously I can't speak to that from a yes. racial perspective in but I remember feeling that sense in some way when I was kind of awakening to mm-hmm. patriarchy. There's a relief in thinking, I am not yeah. crazy. <laughs> I Wow, like everyone made me yeah. feel like this was all yeah. in my head everyone made me feel like I was overreacting
0: yeah. and I started to think it was all in my head but these people they saw it too yeah, you know and I think that um for me because I've probably like yourself um Clem I've got a pretty strong sense of justice and I always have um and I think one of the things about not being able to talk about my own racialized experiences you know for the comfort of white people and just to survive um one of the things i have been vocal about is the you know the fights of other people shall we say or you know the injustices they face and i've been very 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 vocal about those and um
1: well i wanted to ask you about one of the things that i think also is so admirable about you is that you really put your money where your mouth is when it comes to being an activist when it comes to supporting people who are navigating maybe maybe navigating a different part of the system to you but still navigating some form of oppression yeah and uh, I thought so obviously a lot of people listening to this and a lot of people who follow your Instagram also wouldn't be aware of this, but you've joined in, you know, you joined in the childcare strike of your children's childcare mm-hmm. educators as yeah. a mum yeah. doing that. You know, not as a not as an educator working at the center, but you were like, Well, these people educate my children. I'm gonna join the yeah, strike. I did.
0: I am. Um, it was a na- it was a national strike and our, uh childcare center were quite central in it because they had links to the unions um, that were supporting well, I guess moved the strike, but, um, yeah, I did. I was kind of a parent representative, I guess, um, that wanted to, as you say, you know, speak up for them and the, you know, the absolutely kind of diabolical pay issues around the fact that childcare is, you know, a female centered, uh, workspace. And yeah. so, yeah, I did. And I, yeah, I was at the, national press conference. So yeah, I did a you know, fair bit of talking on that. And I was in a, a few newspapers and I did a, a, an article with Marie Claire, where we talked about how childcare workers are devalued, um, in society and, you know, how we're we just getting it wrong. You know, we, we pay investment bankers, a shitload of money to look after our money, but surely our children, you know, are, are probably one of our biggest investments, or should be one of our biggest investments. And so, therefore, why are we paying investment bankers the shitload they get, and then you know, childcare workers get nothing? It, it's it's.
1: This is this is how the system, you know, manages to s- neatly sidestep. Yeah. It's very slippery. Richard Dennis, the economist, tells a story uh, about you know presenting to a, a room full of CEOs and saying to them. You know, well, why uh, we're talking about the gender wage gap primarily, and and whenever they say things like, "Well, you need to offer salaries to get the best people for the job," you need to offer good money to get the best people for the job. He will say to them things like, "Okay, how many of you have children? How many of those children are in childcare? Would you agree that one of the most important, if not the most important, jobs in the world, is the person who's taking care of your children?" And of course whether or not they believe that to be true or not, they feel obliged to say, yes, well, of course that's true. And so Richard Dennis then says, well, why aren't they being paid? You know, why don't they have the highest paid jobs in the country? This is the most important job that someone can do. And the story he tells involves a CEO who turns around and says, oh, yes, but but they like that work. They would do it for free because they enjoy oh. it so much. And this is the lie. It's you know, this is an, something interesting I find about, um, and very galvanizing I find about your activism is that you were really intent on exposing the lies that people want to tell to maintain yeah. the status quo. And this is a lie that people yeah. tell themselves. Well, they would do it. They they
0: enjoy it. They yeah. like yeah. it. And it's it's the same in um, lots of sectors which are female, you know, dominated. You know. The, workplaces no education is no different um as in mm. uh teaching as in in schools not in a child care center nursing you know they, they get you on that um because you've had a not a calling but you've you know most people that go into teaching nursing child care do it because they enjoy the people that they are you know um providing a service for because they're invested in that um And so they get you on that, you know. They're like, well, mm, you know, we know you care, so we're going to just get that care, extract it from you and, you know, not compensate you because you'll feel good about yourself. You know, you're doing this because, you know, you love it. It's it's just bullshit. It's crap, you know.
1: And you're just a woman and you're more likely than not a low-paid woman, so we don't really need to care about you. You might be white, but you're probably also (laughs) not, so especially we don't need to care about you. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah. that whole play out happens, you know, all the time. And I think for me, one important thing, um, which through my career as a teacher, and you know, which was, you know, really uh, highlighted with the activism I did for the childcare workers was the, I guess, the importance of being involved in a union um, and how when unions are working well, they can be, you know, great systems to, you know, make change and support the most oppressed people if they're set up properly and they're working as efficiently as they should be. Um, you know, I've been on strike, I think, as a teacher in London a couple of times, twice maybe, um, you know, all led by the union that I was represented by. And again, it's usually the same things, you know. It's, I think, the second time I went on strike in London, it was to do with... Um, uh, increments of yeah, pay rise increments, I think every year we got a slight increment at the rate of inflation. However, our student loans were also raised at the rate of inflation every year, but they right. um, charged us inflation at a different rate to which they paid it. And of course they, of did, course they did in education, which is predominantly female, you know, uh, so they just mm. get, you, get you the whole time. Mm. When I was talking before about that, kind of self gaslighting and self silencing that's probably one of the biggest proponents in that whole dance if you like it's the fact that on the occasions you do put yourself out there and it really is putting yourself out there because you make yourself vulnerable by speaking up when you do that 9.99999 times out of 10 it is weaponized against you whether at face value or behind the scenes you know and and it <sighs> It it, it always is, you know, to to such extremes that, you know, one particular common microaggression that I face all of the bloody time, I don't even ever, ever call out and it happens so frequently. I should be calling it out, you know, I could call it out probably at least twice a week and I don't. And that's um, like when I go up to the shopping centre not far from here, you know, like often there's the communal eating bars that you all sit at together. And, you know, you chuckle, your shit out, your keys, your wallet and everything. And when I sit down, the wallet of the person I sit next, next to goes instantly. They pick it up and it's gone. Out of sight. And it's every time. And I notice it every time. And I don't ever say anything. Because really, can you imagine what happens in that situation when I sit there and I say, oh, why'd you move your wallet? Excuse me. You know, you know it, it just gets weaponized against you straight away. So you just don't do it you just silence yourself and you just put up with this shit and ignore it so much so I barely would talk to my mum or my husband about it because what's the point or historically what has the point been because it's a waste of my energy talking about it because then I have to bloody live the experience again you know I can't call people out because then that mm. that's even worse you know than just living it because then it's turned on you and know,
1: it reminds me of the Toni Morrison quote about the function of racism being distraction.
0: And and I guess that's part of the gaslighting, you know, whilst I'm, you know, distracted by fear of having it, you know, doubly hit at me um, and kind of trying to cope with that and, you know, that kind of, you know, dance the dance of, oh, did that happen? Didn't it happen? Am I being oversensitive? Yeah, you're totally consumed and distracted with that whole internal narrative and it's fucking exhausting. You know, it's exhausting. Um, Yeah. I would love
1: to have you come back to the podcast again (laughs) to do part two of this conversation and then more and more parts. But shall we get to the questions for
0: now? let's do that.
1: Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Kirsty are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two humans who've got a little thing called life experience, and who are both learning how to harness their anger. Hi Big Sisters, do you have any advice on how to deal with anger? Over the past two weeks I've been really struggling with this emotion, a tidal wave that seems to be coming up again and again after being assaulted in my first year of university. While I feel that I've been able to come to terms with what happened, I still have a huge amount of anger towards the university, men in general, and the institutions that continue to do nothing about rape culture. The anger is very visceral, and I feel it intensely in my upper stomach, nausea and a lack of appetite. It's very challenging. Any advice would be appreciated.
0: First of all, I would like to say I'm deeply sorry to the person that has written into you to share that experience. It's horrific and, um, they shouldn't have to go through that. Um, secondly, I think as somebody that navigates anger constantly, <laughs> um, I think I would like to tell this person that as women in society, we are conditioned to fear our anger and we are taught explicitly to suppress it um shy away from it and cover it up. And for me, anger's kind of my secret weapon. Anger obviously is the you know the surface manifestation to other uh, shit going down deeper inside. So you know the anger for this person is obviously a direct result of the trauma that she's experienced. Um And for me, I would, you know, I spent a lot of my life suppressing the anger that I felt about my lived experience as this person is obviously describing here. Um, But what I've kind of come to reckon with is when I've sat with the anger in a very different way, I've not, you know, I've not hidden it because I couldn't, because it was so completely overwhelming as this person's anger will be because of the, you know, the depth Mm. of her trauma. It actually has a purpose in my view. Anger is anger's a manifestation, which has a, a, a purpose for us. You know, it drives us forward, and uh, to protect ourselves to a certain extent, not that you can protect yourself from being raped, but, you know, it, it anger, I guess, uh, provides a protective barrier around us to some extent in, in terms of its noise, you know, uh, uh-huh. also, you know, For me, it's been a huge driver for my activism and I'm not, you know, proposing this person becomes an activist. It's, that's not, you know, the direct use for her anger, but what it can do is, I don't know, it can, it can push you, um, it can push you through some of that pain,
1: I feel like I also want to echo exactly what you've said, Kirsty. that firstly, I'm so, so sorry to this person that they have experienced this, but also one of the qualifiers that I often try and put in is that I'm so sorry someone did this to you and that you weren't supported by the institutions around you. you. You weren't supported to be able to get some kind of justice, whether or not that was restorative justice or a different kind of justice, that you feel trapped in some way in that moment and trapped in the frustration and the lack of support. I think that that is incredibly hard and the fact that you are functioning and thriving and surviving is more than commendable. I think that you should be applauded for that, you and everyone else who is experiencing that same thing. The second thing that I'll say is that I completely echo what you're saying, Kirsty, about being able to harness anger as as a tool. I mean, the thing is that as with so many of the questions that are submitted to this show, there's not really an easy answer. I would love to sit here and say that, the best thing for you to do in order to uh, uh, dissipate this rage inside is this, this, and this, that this will heal you, that doing this will make everything better. But unfortunately we know that that's not the world that we live in and there are millions if not billions of people walking around every day having this same internal wrestle. How do they? How do they move through it? I've been listening to this really amazing podcast lately called Finding Fred, and it's about Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And the presenter of it actually is an African American man. So he's looking at it through the the lens of not just how important Mr. Rogers was to educating people about empathy, but how important it was to a lot of black kids growing up in the 60s and the 70s in particular, who felt seen by this person on television in a way that the society and the structures that they were living in really did not see them and did not value them and did not say to them what Mr. Rogers was saying every day or every week, which was, I love you just the way you are. You are perfect just the way you are. And so he's speaking to a lot of people, a lot of his contemporaries, a lot of black Americans who grew up with Mr. Rogers and talking to them about the importance that this show on PBS, you know, publicly accessed TV had on them and had on their sense of self. And in the first episode, he, the the woman that he's speaking to talks about this kind of central tenet that Mr Rogers focused on in terms of educating kids. And you may have seen it because it formed part of a very famous uh, submission that he made to the, to Congress about not cutting uh, public access televisions funding What do you do with the mad that you feel? And I feel like that's obviously very relevant in this conversation because it's stripping it right back to the fact that it's a valid emotion. It does trigger within us a lot of childhood insecurities, a a need for care and comfort and for someone to see us and take care of us and recognise that we've been harmed in some way. And to give us an outlet for what that emotion has done to us. What do you do with the mad that you feel? I guess the answer to this question, I think, is not that either of us, Kirsty, can give her a clear direction on what to do with the mad that she feels, but to acknowledge and yeah. validate that the mad that she feels is real and it is purposeful and it is there for yes. a reason. It shouldn't be there but it's there for a reason because someone did something to
0: you and let you down. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that, um, yeah, that's the exact reason it's there. And just like you say, know that it's there for a reason, but don't be forced to run away from it, you know, because that's what is dictated to us to do, you know, don't be angry, you know, Uh, go go with it to a certain extent, you know, you know, yeah
1: well especially for you the the connotations of the angry black woman makes it so much more difficult for you to express that rage you
0: know and i think for me and i think that's probably where i was not not very articulately trying to go is that i've kind of taken it on you know it's like i've sat on so much anger for so long and it hasn't served me you know what what does audrey lord say about that you know um silence won't save you you know or whatever and I guess your silence can relate to your anger and and so i've kind of gone well i'm damned if i do damned if i don't if i sit here and do nothing nothing changes you know it's the same old shit. but if i let all that anger out uh yeah i'm gonna get labeled but maybe there will be change and i've kind of sat with it and i and embracing that anger to to, in that sense has kind of liberated me from that fear of that anger because i do not give Two flying fucks. Who calls me an angry black woman or an angry woman or an angry whatever anymore? It doesn't touch me because really, if that's as bad as it gets, then, you know, I've been hit with far worse, you know. And it's, you know, if that's as good as you're going to give, then get out of my way, you know. I think that's where I am with that.
1: I think if you can find a way to make the anger yeah, work for yeah. you, if you can channel it into something yes. productive, which is not to say that your anger is only useful if you make it productive but just for your own healing to acknowledge its existence to acknowledge it
0: yeah and exactly and i think that's where i was going with that it's a driver you know for me whilst i was trying to turn away from this anger the whole time it would kind of sit bubbling below the surface and it would kind of pop out in different ways and i wouldn't quite understand why did I react like that? You know, but then when I did just let it all fly out and sit with it and accept it and not run from it, it, that was healing to some extent in itself, you know, I'm not healed and I'm not suggesting this person is going to be healed by um, sitting with that anger, but the the liberation you feel from allowing it to to flow out because it's, it's a, a human response. You know, it's, it's one, you know, it's, it's a genuine human response and, you know, as Audre Lord says, you know, our feelings, you know, are one of our most genuine pathways to knowledge, you know, and it tells us something about ourselves. Our anger has a story that is part of who she is, part of what she has experienced, and she doesn't need to turn it away or be frightened of it, you know, mm. um, because it's hers. And like you say, if she can channel it to something that will help her in another way, amazing. If not, I think sitting with it. And, of course, you know, seeking out the help, of a professionally trained counsellor, and on that, mm. I would like to say, um, obviously, across the years, I have had a lot of therapy, and um, my current therapist, who is amazing, um, a lot of her work has helped me because she has a feminist gaze on things, and so lots of the restorative work that she's done with me has literally just been, you know, lens changing and I'm not suggesting that's going to help this person but what I am suggesting is is that if they do go and seek a counsellor they talk to them about you know what philosophies they extract from and for me having a woman that that kind of takes on feminism within her practice has been hugely impactful in my journey you know Mm -hmm. so
1: that's great advice and it's great advice to end on as well that don't be afraid to question your therapist or your pet- your potential therapist about what their values are, about what their moral yeah, framework is. There's
0: also a hell of a lot of gaslighting within the medical institution itself as well. And I mean, I can write books on that, I'm sure of it. But I think having a woman in front of you oh, that believes you, doesn't question you, is so important in there and not only that, that will say to you your anger is valid, it is right, it's got a place you do not need to be afraid of this anger and will work with you with that anger. You know, I think, yeah, it's been important for me. And me.
1: I think having conversations with our emotions is a really mm-hmm. good practice. You know, a- a- acknowledging the anger isn't just about saying I yes. know that it's there. Give it form, speak with it, listen to it, tell it how you feel. These are all good meditative therapeutic practices that can help you to feel if not healed or some
0: sense of peace, at least more in dialogue yeah, with absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, um, and uh, one of the things that I do, we've, we're going to end this question, but we've carried on. And um, one of the things that I find quite, uh, helpful is I often write things down when I'm really angry, you know, and I'll, you know, type it down or write it down. And I actually, do my very best writing and um when i'm angry because i guess it's that you know it's linked in adrenaline and whatnot and you know it's why i'm not a very good person to argue with as well because when i'm angry i tend to you know be a bit undefeatable (laughs) so um yeah you know that that's also helpful for me getting putting the anger onto something where i can then look back at it and see it There's, there's a in that process you know that that helps me but again like we said for me it's been the activism it's what's driven the activism without the anger Hmm. there wouldn't be the activism you know so for me it's that's how I guess I've channeled it and that I guess which comes back to your first question of what do I do kind of as a release I think the activism to some extent whilst it's triggering and traumatizing for me has been a release and I know that a lot of people that experience trauma again not suggesting find going into that area and trying to traction change in whatever small way they can or, um, you know, is, is often a helpful way to channel that anger and it gives you a sense of empowerment um, and, I guess, agency. That. I don't know. Yeah. Just know that we believe
1: you. It's not your fault. We love you. And we want you to be okay. Absolutely. Hi there. I'm 21 years old living on my own in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been in a relationship with my southern country heterosexual cisgender boyfriend for two years we have a lot of intimate shared experiences with psychedelics, family, music, and our awesome dog. We've mostly worked out our love languages, the best way to respect each other's space, how to ask for what we need, and how to tell each other if the other is being a total arsehole. As 21-year-olds living on our own, obviously we don't have everything figured out. Also, since he's hetero and cis, there are things that I'm aware of as a worldly bisexual person from NYC that he's never even thought of. He's open and respectful, as he should be, but our differences in experiences and therefore understanding present challenges I wish someone could talk to me about. My mum is amazing and I talk to her about other things, but I grew up with a manipulative, verbally abusive dad who didn't respect her. Her thoughts on his abuse and my avoiding abuse from other people is watered down because she's so used to it. My friends are all usually single, but still struggle with men, and they can't really talk to me about my great boyfriend, who's only sometimes a prick. I would talk to my boyfriend, but it's kind of a conflict of interest, and I really need a new perspective on how to educate him without becoming an angry, pessimistic force, always telling him he's wrong. I read Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft, as per your recommendation, and it really gave me vocabulary and a new understanding of behaviours I've been seeing all my life. Do you have ideas for forums I can join or things I can read to ground myself and fortify my language to bring him along on my life journey? He's someone I want to be with and see earn the title of partner to me. Can you guide me to the knowledge that me, a recovering people pleaser, and he, a recovering mediocre dude, need to be as rich with love and understanding as I know we can be? Well, wow. Like, can we just say from the outset, what a fucking amazing young woman.
0: I know, 21, and she's, you know, able to articulate that in a way with such depth of understanding of the differences between her and her partner. Obviously, she's aware of the differences, but, you know, how they do shape their experiences and, you know, She's not, you know, she's wanting to have a better alternative for them to exist together. So, yeah, I think it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. The fact that they have
1: a shared language, even though he may not be quite as fluent in the language that she wants to speak with him, the fact that they have a shared language of respect, they've talked obviously about their emotions, about what they want. 21,
0: God, the kids are okay. I know, <laughs> um, and you know she's she's touched upon the big big thing for them. It's obviously the big area that's causing you know this bit of fraction When I have you, it's it's the the their different intersectionalities you know that impact their lived experience. Him as a you know a, a, a cis uh, you know a cis white male, and her as a bisexual woman navigating that space together. And so of course their experiences of the world are going to be very different. And um, she's gonna see things very differently to he does. Um, and as any, you know, as any cis he- white male has to do, you know, he, he he's gonna have to proactively do some learning, you know, because he's got, he's got a fair amount of reckoning to do, you know, with the world to see it from outside of the, the perspective that he does which is so easily facilitated and handed to him you know and Mm -hmm. so I guess the thing that kind of drew me in with what she said was was that you know she wants to engage with him to help him develop but what she doesn't want to do is become this uh I guess you know this trophy mother the angry angry mother exactly his mother and nor should she be But what I, what I found interesting about the way she'd worded that was, you know, she quite clearly said that is something she doesn't want to become. And for me, that that's kind of key in this because, um, you know, it's not her job to educate him. It's not her job to be his mum and his teacher and all of those things. But, you know, if she wants to get to that space within that, that she's aiming to, that may essentially, shift her into that role and and she's quite clearly said that is not something she wants so Mm. where i'm going with this is i guess it's about boundaries for her navigating this you know and and she has to be um to maintain her happiness in order to be able to survive within that relationship she has to have really clear boundaries of where she is prepared to take him um, and go with him in order to to to, you know get them to a place they both want to be and she's made it very clear that she does not want to have to present as this angry mother and like we said nor should she and so she needs to have i think some clarity in her mind of you know what what that means and how she ends Mm -hmm. up that spot if she doesn't want to get there and so and and i guess be confident enough within herself not to compromise that in order to, I guess, shape shift for the relationship to some extent, you
1: know. It's, oh my it's god, that's such a good way of putting
0: it. Shape shifting. Yeah. yeah, well, it's you what know, we do it, it's, it's what we fucking do, you know. To I've never heard it put like that before,
1: though. That is so clear. One thing that really stuck out to me. I mean, there was lots actually. I really loved, for a start, that she acknowledged. I don't know if this is in reference to stuff that I say. It seems like she's read some of the things that I've said and that she's been guided by that, which is amazing. But I loved that she said, I am hoping that he will earn the title of partner to me. She yeah. loves him, she's building some kind of life with him, but she recognises that that alone is not enough to earn that title. So she's coming to the situation with a really clear understanding of what it is she wants but also what it is she deserves. Exactly. And I think that that's great. The other thing, though, is it's one thing to want to educate yourself, and I think that it's marvellous that she's looking for recommendations of books, forums that she can join, clearly other people that she can be surrounded by that can help to further shape her already pretty clear political outlook. Yeah. But that's not enough for a relationship like she wants he needs to do that work too so she can go out and read all of these books but it would i don't wouldn't recommend that she then just explains them to him he has to also seek this knowledge for himself because otherwise you are just doing that work for them aren't you and it becomes as you and i both know it becomes a lot more um oppressive and draining but also difficult to avoid if children enter the scene,
0: yeah, yes, but much harder, and um, and I think that's, I guess, where I was going with the boundaries thing. She has to have clear a clear idea in terms of boundaries in her head of how much work she's prepared to do for him. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's zero, because he should just be doing it. But you know, if if you know, where where does she draw the line? Because what we always have to remember is while she's feeding him the work. It's labour on her part all the time, and back to her point about not wanting to become the angry mother. You know, it's always it's compromise on her that erosion of self the whole time in order to get him to a place he should be for her. She needs him to be for her, but you know, how much labour do you give to that? Which which is, Mm. you know, your point as well. You know, and she has to have a clear, clear limit in her mind if she'll do any at all to help him, because she shouldn't, you know, she shouldn't have to do that. So, and it's about not overstepping that. And like you say, she quite pointedly, you know, she seems very intentional with her words. She said, you know, if if he can become that partner that, that he should be for her, you know, it's not a label she's mm-hmm. given him yet. And in, in doing that, um, you know, for me, that acknowledges she, she is aware of her agency within this in terms of kind of, you know, being able to enact, enact boundaries and and so forth. And so that's for me, what what I think that is the biggest thing for her is to be very clear on how much she's willing to feed him, how, how much she's not. Um, and if he doesn't do it himself, at what point does then stop because it's compromising her because she feels that anger coming, come into her space, which is something she's defined that she doesn't want to happen. So it's about, I think how far you let that go. And like you said, which is completely right as soon as kids come into the space whole different ball game because it's not just about yeah. surviving it's about surviving with children and it's way way more complicated you know and it, it complicates making decisions about anything you know
1: you don't have the space no. in your brain to deal with the with these conversations in that immediate after period of a, a baby arriving and so then the resentment builds up the the fracture between the two of you widens. What I would say is that in terms of reading, you know, practical resources that we can recommend to her, obviously reading, you know, black thinkers like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, these will give her a really good basis in, you know, the the writing that they do particularly around radical self-love and radical self-care and boundaries Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think will be really helpful. So reading Audrey Lord and Bell Hooks I think will give you a really broad good understanding but also for your personal situation will be really uh, meaningful to you. Also in terms of just the domestic workload, Gemma Hartley's Fed Up is a really great exploration yeah. of what okay. that, that dynamic yeah. is between yeah. men and women in a relationship. So that's a good place to yeah. go to.
0: That book for me was helpful. Before COVID, um, I had uh, got to a place of being completely just burnt out and tired Mm -hmm. and just exhausted from being a mum of three children. And I was like, I've got to stop. I've got to do something about this. And I took myself off by myself to Bali and I read that book whilst I was there and I was literally like, you know, my husband was back in Australia with my three children. And I think he was getting texts every two seconds with quotes, you know, from the book. And I was like this and this, and it really, it gives you the language of exactly what, you know, goes on in that kind of uh, dynamic. And it's, yeah, it was really helpful. And it was also really helpful in illuminating um, for both myself and for him about uh, some of the intricacies that are hard to articulate about, kind of what goes down, that are, you know, are not not related to the intersectional intersectionalities that we come to our relationship with. Because, you know, for those that are listening, my husband's white, and so for him on our relationship, it's, um, you know, that is a big point of difference. I experience a lot of things which he will never know or understand because he's not lived them, and nor does he likely even notice them. Not not through willful ignorance, but because they just don't hit his radar because they don't have to, you know, and it's, it's complicated. Yeah. So
1: I feel like yeah. you are in such a, this, this, this person who submitted this question, you are in such an amazing position because of the work that you've done on yourself, the education that you have chosen for yourself. You can expect that of this man who you would like to one day become your partner. But I would just like to leave you with the reminder that there's also a whole world out there. And as much as I, as much as I love that you have this love and if this is what you want to grow and, and grow alongside and grow with, that's great. I support you in that, but don't be afraid as well of what it means to, to not have it because it sounds to me like you're so well equipped to take care of yourself if you decided at some point to walk away, which I'm not suggesting you do now. But just hold that in the back of your mind that that is always possible too. You might not want it, it might not be easy, but it's always possible and you can look after yourself. And he maybe needs to know that, that if he's not willing to do this last little bit, uh, this last little leg of work on himself
0: you can walk away absolutely absolutely and back to that shape-shifting mm-hmm. you know don't shape-shift yourself so much that you either become what you've said yourself you don't want to become there's nothing wrong with being angry as we've said but you've said that's not what you want for you so you don't shape-shift yourself enough to accommodate his lack of work in order to maintain a relationship you and that's where i was going i guess with boundaries you need to be clear enough in your head at what point you stop and you if that's where it you know if that's what happens and you walk away knowing you are 21 years old right now and that's not patronizing it's that you've got a lot of hopefully life left to live and a lot of people to meet a lot of interactions to have and although you obviously you know you've expressed you love your partner dearly like you've got a lot of lovers to learn um, from Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to settle for something if it doesn't work for you, you know, after you've given opportunities for for people to, you know, make enough change for it to, to mean that you don't have to shapeshift so much that you become something that you don't want to be, you know, don't lose yourself in it and, and, you know, call it before that happens.
1: The final thing that I will leave you on before we wrap this up is the reminder and put this write this down and put it on the wall in your house somewhere just for you to look at every day no matter how you feel about a person and no matter how genuinely happy they make you you are and have to be the love of your own life
0: absolutely you do absolutely <laughs>
1: You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, Your big sisters. If you have a question, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. If you'd like to support the ongoing making of this podcast, you can find me on Patreon under the username Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been Kirsty Rutherford, an anti-racism educator who you can follow on Instagram on at quirkykirkyruthers. It has been absolutely thrilling, illuminating, a real privilege to have you on this episode with me. I'm so grateful that we met. I'm so grateful for your work. I learn from you every day and I know that more and more people are learning from you too. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all that you do as well. I, you know, it's you know, well, It's true, seeing people like you people like me speaking out about you know injustice it's really yeah. for others, it she's this through with the anger
1: <laughs> people can follow you on instagram on at quirky brothers i will link that in the line notes to the show Kirsty, do you have any plans to write a book are you setting up a patreon account i think you really should
0: well, I, I don't know. I've got a lot of content in my head. Maybe I should write a book, Clem. Maybe I should. But, um, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to see. Watch this space, you know. As long as people are learning and, you know, taking action with that learning, that's enough for now. But maybe, there, maybe I've got a book in me. Who knows?
1: <laughs> you definitely do. I can't wait to read it. And I am so very glad that you're in the world.
0: Oh, thank, thank you. you. That's lovely. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.
1: Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open.